Whether you suffer from depression, anxiety, feel stuck, or lack motivation, it all starts in the mind. We're on a quest to help us break through life's most challenging obstacles. No matter who we are or what we hope to achieve, clarity, joy, and self-love will help us lead the way. How you guys doing? I'm Tony Arce, and this is the Mind Reboot Program and Podcast. Today, I'm joined by licensed marriage and family therapist and clinical director of Envision U and adjunct professor at Adler University here in Chicago, Joshua Waters. Josh, thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. No, I don't think I've been this excited to have a conversation since uh, mm. I've kept you already for like an hour before oh, we yeah. jumped on. So thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> we had to warm up to it. You know, not everybody wants to jump into a therapy session. For so, sure. For yeah. sure. <laughs> um, no, no, no. I, I, I love what you're doing, but um, you have taken quite the... You know, interesting, but uh, certainly admirable journey to get to where you're at uh, at this point. Mm. And uh, I'd love for you to share a little bit about your story, where you grew up, and um, yeah, you know, your education and all that, and where it led you, and how you ended up in Chicago. Sure. Yeah. No, it's definitely been a journey. Uh, I wouldn't have thought that I'd be a therapist at this point uh, when I was growing up. That's not what I thought I was going to be. So really? it's it's taken a lot of turns, but um, okay. it's been a it's been an interesting ride. Um, so yeah, I was born in uh, Burlington, Iowa, um, small town in Southeast Iowa. I went to the University of Iowa for undergrad um, and got a BS in psychology. And it was at that point that I knew that I wanted to get out of Iowa. And so for grad school, I decided that I wanted to go somewhere warm and I wanted it to be at least a thousand miles away from home. And Valdosta, Georgia just happens to be a thousand and eleven miles from my doorstep. Um, So that was great. That's where I went. How'd you even hear about him? Um, so in marriage and family therapy land, there are only so many schools to choose from that are accredited by the, the larger national licensing body um, or the accrediting body. And uh, so I just looked at the database. There's like 35 or 40 to choose from. And one of them was in Valdosta, Georgia. They had just happened to have like one of the best clinical training programs, too, with having a, a campus practice on site, like a clinic on site. Um, so I knew I was going to be getting experience actually doing therapy in my grad program instead of just learning about it and then getting an internship and learning through basically getting a job that I'm not getting paid for. So, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a beautiful experience. So, um, yeah, I went to Georgia. Uh, I stayed down there for a couple of years, um, came out and had my first relationship there and dated somebody for three years. Uh, and you say you came out. Yeah, it came out as gay. Yeah. Um, so it was, I had no interest in dating anybody in Iowa. So there was no need to uh, really identify myself or, or with anybody as. Uh, now, do I remember this correctly? Um, did you also remember saying that part of moving was helping you um, kind of figure that out too? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why did you see those as, as going hand in hand? So, because I've heard that from yeah. others as well. Well, it was, it was like, at least for me, I wasn't worried about backlash from my family right. for coming out. I actually knew that all my friends and family would be super supportive. I had gay people in my network. Like I never really worried about that. But it was something that I had been thinking about and wrestling with on my own for my entire life. And uh, I wanted it to be mine. And so I knew that if I came out while I was surrounded by all of the people that I was familiar and comfortable with, that it would become part of my identity, like a major part of my identity that they were going to help form. And I wanted to figure that out on my own. So moving and, and figuring out what all of that meant for me, apart from the life that I'd known for 22 years to begin with. Um, yeah, that was, that was really big. 
it helped me feel comfortable. It was a, the first year there was dark. It was weird, uh, like not living in a place where I knew everybody um, and being a thousand miles away from home definitely posed some challenges. But I think it was the, that dark year that also helped form a lot of things for me um, in my career and what I wanted to do. And you had some pretty big uh, shoes to fill, too, in, in your role there with the, um, the clinic, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Tell, me, tell me a little bit about uh, what you did professionally. Oh, Lord. So, um, I mean, as a student, right? I mean, it was mm-hmm. part of your, but still, it was a professional. Yeah. Very yeah. professional. I mean, I, d- I did a bunch of different things when I was an undergrad, but it was when I went to grad school. I worked for the program as a graduate assistant for the program director. And so I got to help her with a lot of the like behind the scenes admin work and, and development stuff within the program and helping new students onboard into the, the program. Um, so it was a lot of, a lot of really cool professional experiences there. In addition to, working at the on-site clinic and seeing clients and working with teams of therapists behind a mirror and doing really cool, beautiful, creative therapy work that is untainted by the insurance industry. Um, Because once insurance gets involved, it changes the whole game. Um, And I'll talk about that too. But So that was in grad school. And then as soon as I graduated, I started working for a court-mandated family therapy program for juvenile delinquents. Um, and so that was a, a federally funded program that was aimed to reduce recidivism in the Georgia juvenile justice system. Uh, I think at the time that I started in 2014, uh, there was like a 65, 68% recidiv- recidivism rate, which basically meant that first time offenders in the juvenile system would re-enter the system within six months of discharge. So they get charged with something, they get on probation, they finish probation, they're back within six months. Mm -hmm. 68%, that's like three out of every four kids is coming back into the system. And once you get in twice, like your your chances of getting out of the system before you're an adult are slim to none. Um, And so through working in this program and getting, getting the whole court system and the probation system and the school system to work in alignment with these families, we were able to significantly reduce the rates. I mean, like one year, I think we got it down to like 19%. And it was that that was a phenomenal, phenomenal year. Um, but that was also just one year in one county in one section of Georgia working with one team of three therapists. So like if you could put into one sentence why or how, <clears throat> you know, you were able to create such impact. Um, what, you know, what, what would you say to that? Mm. A big part of it was being like the only white person that worked in my company and, <laughs> and having having a, a presence in that courtroom. That having a voice or given voice to a community. I was, that... I was given a voice and I was given that privilege to do that. And I think it, I wasn't doing it to be admirable. I just sure. I took that job because I was excited about it and I wanted to be able to help in places that mattered. And so I get into the system and every single person in the courtroom but me is the the majority population in South Georgia, which is African-American, the black yeah. community. Yeah. And so I was this uppity white guy coming in and disturbing the system and getting people to either hate me or love me. And either <laughs> way, like they rallied and, and this community like started to learn how to interact with the families differently instead of just punishing and, and trying to hold them accountable for their behavior. It's like, you have to understand why that kid keeps stealing 
He keeps stealing from the convenience store because he doesn't have food at home. Yeah. Why doesn't he have food at home? We can't just blame the parents either. He can't just say, mom's a bad mom, dad's, you know, whatever. Yeah. You also have to understand that they're dealing with mental health issues and a lack of support from their environment. And they have three young kids that they have to care for. And they also have three different schools that they're going to. And they have no transportation. And there is no public transportation in this community. And then they're also struggling to pay rent. And they're also like... It just keeps building. Well, it's just that you always hear that being poor is very expensive, right? So expensive. Yeah. So expensive. So now a lot to deal with. And so, I mean, a lot, I mean, how did you, yeah, how do you, how do you process that? Not, not, not growing up with, I mean, just or growing up in a very different environment. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, I think that that's what was helpful for mm-hmm. me was that I actually grew up outside of that system and I wasn't grown. I didn't grow up in like affluence or anything. We, we, my back home, we called it like upper middle, middle poverty, like not, not middle <laughs> class, but you know, we, it, it was a struggle, like, especially after my parents' second divorce, uh, there was a, a lot of financial struggle and I started working when I was 14 to, to start taking care of myself in that way too. Um, just to take some of the burden off of my family, but regardless, tangential, uh, I was not born in a system of like racial oppression and living in a super impoverished community. Uh, so I was able to step into the system and really use those differences to figure out why people are doing what they're doing, why they're feeling what they're feeling, what's not happening in these conversations that is leading to the same thing happening for them over and over. Like I'm just walking into a paradox that just keeps going and going. And I'm the one who has to break the mold and, and like hold these families hands or hold the probation officer's hands or hold the judge's hands. I mean, I had this judge coming to me, like calling me asking about how to help these families because it was so sad. And and he was a black judge. He was established in the community for 50 years. And he wanted nothing more than to help these generations of black families that had no support. And he knew these kids, he knew their moms, he knew their grandparents. He went to school with some of their grandparents. And so he knew and, and loved these families, but he was struggling because again, it was a bunch of people doing their own individual things to address these problems, but we didn't have somebody connecting them all. That's why marriage and family therapy is about whatever that family system is. It's really about systems. I really wish we were called licensed systems therapists because that's what we're working with is, is systems of, of communities, right? Communities of, of governments of, uh, or of families, of couples, of people's relationships with themselves. Like it's all, it's all about understanding all the relationship. System. Like you said, exactly. Um, interesting. Yep. Interesting. And it just, and we'll get into it too, but it, it, it I'm sure it helped also the way that we've been talking a lot of, you know, just you're kind of an, uh, an anomaly out there uh, in that you share a lot of the, um, what, diagnoses or symptoms or, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. uh, uh, as some of your patients, right, mm-hmm. that you're able to identify, but that uh, one of those that you do is or strongly with is ADHD. Yes. And that you think that also just that kind of, Mine was, it was like prime for it. It was just an opportunity that was uh, conducive to the way you think. Uh, being in Georgia? Yeah, or? yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. I mean, I think therapy itself was was kind of aligned with ADHD for me. Like Interesting. Every job just I've had has been very um, engaging, stimulating, creative, and I get to do something like all the time. It's not a lot of just sitting and 
desk work. Oh my God, if I had to sit in one place for more than two hours at a time, I would die. So therapy is a nice, uh, nice medium there because I get to sit with somebody and play with one puzzle, which is one person or one system sitting in front of me, get to play with that for an hour and then they leave. And it's literally my job to put that down, let them live their life for the next week. And for me to move on to the next person and help them play with their puzzle and yeah. figure out what's going on and how to fit different pieces together. And so for me, it's like constantly I'm getting something new to engage me in, in having more conversations about growth and change and, and just supporting people. Um, so I think that fit with my ADHD really well. Like I couldn't just work on one project for eight hours. I would... I would absolutely implode. Your mind. Yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, so I, I want to get to what you do here, um, you know, in Chicago. So tell me how you ended up from from Georgia to to Chicago. Yeah. So um, and in particular, this role. Right. Well, and this is going to be kind of a convoluted story because it, I kind of skipped over the origin of why I wanted to be a therapist, and that's uh, included in this this portion. And do so, me, and do me one quick favor. Mm-hmm. Uh, will you pull it back just a little bit towards me? Just so it's not, I, I made it, uh, so like push it towards, like push it away from you. Oh. Yeah. Like right there. Like that? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's nice. Right. That's really nice. I, cause so I, it was really weird cause I made these settings, um, or these, these changes to settings cause on one end I felt like that the person over there was really loud. Uh, and I was like not, and I kept having to turn it up and I was like, what the hell? So I realized there was some settings on there. So then it, it leveled it out, but then I kept hearing you kind of like, like kind of like a little almost like it's testing the limits. So I, oh, maybe oh yeah, it's 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 changed to the point where you can, you know, kind of have it out and not sure. be so concerned with, um, where yeah, being at. like right here, right? Yeah. yeah. So anyway, thank you. Yeah, appreciate absolutely. it. Now, okay, we can go back. <laughs> um, so what were we even talking about? Um, my transition to Chicago. Oh, yeah. So, so can, yep. yep. Yeah, so how, please tell me about the transition from. Uh, how'd you get to Chicago and specifically this role? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so my whole therapy journey actually started uh, around my childhood best friend committing suicide. Um, that was my senior year of high school and, uh, seeing the impact that that had on his family and on our community, on his friends, that's really what started to get me like invested or, or interested in families. And that's like, I'm also skipping over the first 18 years of my own, uh, interesting family story, but there's more trauma that's been around me than what's specifically happened to me. So that's why I talk more about what I've seen and what I've witnessed and what I've been a part of. Um, Cause it's not like I wasn't abused. I wasn't like neglected. Like I had a beautiful childhood, albeit just some really interesting relationships throughout my life. But I had that experience uh, a year later, my freshman year of college, I had a friend that I had made who was from Belgium. Um, her family didn't want to pay to bring her back to Belgium over the summer after our freshman year. Uh, and so she also committed suicide. She killed herself. Oh my God. Um, and I happened to be the only one that found out out of our friends. So then it was also me relaying that story to each of yeah. our friends from having our dorm. Relive, that, yeah. Having to relive that over and over. And, and again, it was me seeing the experience of like, I was, I was devastated. I was hurt, but I knew that I was okay. And hearing how this impacted other people and how they were not really okay because of losing somebody traumatically like that. I was already kind of desensitized to it. Right. So, but then that was two. And so I was in the psychology program. Like I hadn't really connected to being a therapist yet. I just knew I wanted to do something that helped people. Um, and med school definitely wasn't going to cut it. So then, uh, fast forward, I'm in Georgia 
I'm working with these really intense, high-risk teens and their families. I have a family that I've been working with for a couple of years, and uh, he committed suicide uh, oh. the day after one of our sessions. Jeez. And it was a beautiful session the day before, and it was, uh, come to find out, basically like a goodbye. Uh, he was coming to tell me like how much he appreciated the work that we did and, and all of the, the amazing changes that he was able to achieve. But there was also a hopelessness there, and, and he knew that... And a peace with that hopelessness almost? Or? Yeah, yeah, because he knew that his system wasn't going to change. He knew that his community wasn't really going to change to support him, and, and he knew that it was going to be an uphill battle for most of his life because he was born into poverty. He was born into no resources. Wow. Um, and so it was that third one that like broke a little piece off of my soul, and I knew that if I wanted to keep doing therapy I was going to have to make a move and like get out of this community that had I'd done a lot of really great work with and I, I love that community and I hope to go back and do something else for them eventually too but I also had to get out if I was going to survive mm-hmm. so uh, that prompted my move to Chicago um, I got into a pra- private practice here very very different from the kind of court mandated uh, community based work that I had done before but it's all the same principles I mean you and I were talking about this earlier how I've literally worked with millionaires and I've worked with people who make zero dollars a month and there's no difference in the kinds of relationships we have like there's no difference in how deeply people feel emotion or like who who gets to feel upset or pissed off or whatever it is about what's going on in their life like your problems are valid valid no matter how much money you have in your checking account like money doesn't have anything to do with it that however is not taking into account the significant significantly more or significantly heavier amount of adversity that low-income families are going to face in their lives and so actually using that experience, shifting up to Chicago, now working with affluent young professionals, people who have money, people who have a Blue Cross Platinum PPO coverage plan that will cover everything, including their first child's birth. Like these and plans are ridiculous compared to Medicaid plans, but they pay for therapy. And so people are coming to get better, to work on themselves. And so it was a hard adjustment at first to be able to put that into perspective, to remember that like everybody's trauma, everybody's uh, pain is is valid, no matter how well they've had it. And also realize that there are really high functioning people who have suffered and experienced a significant amount of trauma in their lives too. It's not just about class and, and race and, and privilege. It's also about uh, the kinds of experiences you had kinds of experiences you yeah. had like I'm, my mind just wants to go on a litany yeah, of like yeah, all the yeah. different traumas no that have happened, but it's just but they're all different right all and, and we experience. all respond different to them and yep. we're all prepared differently for them yep. and you know society that we're involved in sees things differently than you know the, the societies of others and you yeah. know yeah it's, I, I think there's so many complexities and nuances there that i don't think it's fair to say one person's pain is deeper or mm-hmm. you know more than another's right yeah, yeah. um but so, so tell me about in terms of the practice like what is uh, and, and i especially want to come at it from a perspective of those who you know maybe are newer to um therapy because you know if, if you're already in therapy and you have a therapist and it's working for you and mm-hmm. you know that, that's that's fine and, and this is just another perspective but um if you're someone who for example just has never gone to a therapist mm-hmm. and wouldn't even know where to start or mm-hmm. the difference between a therapist and an example uh, and a coach right mm-hmm. um yep. which is one of those things that i think is just 
big big topic now, but almost seems like to be the training wheels before the therapy kind of thing or being mm-hmm. okay with something. And uh, so, t- yeah, so long-winded question, but, sure. uh, you know, what, tell me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, there's, there's, I've actually done some talks on the difference between coaches and therapists because there are some distinct differences and benefits to both. I mean, coaches have the specific knowledge and the ability to relate that knowledge to wherever you're at in your skill set mm-hmm. and help you advance and, and grow with that particular thing. Therapists are going to be able to help you understand more of the, the, I call it like the core of, of where your, where your, your emotional experiences are coming from, how you are interacting with other people based on the previous experiences you've had in your life, what stimulates you, what desires you have, like it's more broadly coming to understand who you are and and why you are the way you are. That's really how I pose it to new clients is like, there's no right way to do this. And any problem, like literally any problem I've worked with child molesters, keep in mind, like I've worked with everybody on the spectrum and everybody comes in with a problem that is then wanting to be understood. Like everybody just wants to figure out why we are the way we are. Like on, on an existential level or just on a psychological level of why do I do the things I do? I mean, I would say they're kind of one and the same, but in the sense of like, yeah, the existential, why am I struggling with certain things in my life? Um, why am I not able to achieve the kind of success that I want? Why aren't my relationships feeling mm. fulfilling? Um so when I say like why we are the way we are, I mean like what is going on, what is feeding into our, our lives, what is going on in our environments, what's going on in our, our communities and our culture uh, that is impacting who we are. Would you say that, or, or, or could you even say, um, you know, that um, your patients are simply seeking to look good, or, or look good, <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, feel good um, in... in yeah, like just feel good. Like they don't... Like wanting me to make them feel better? Not necessarily feel better, but tell them how. How do I feel better? Yeah. How do I make something go away? How yeah. do I, you know... Yeah, yeah. Um, well, and that's that I think is exactly what we come to understand is you feel badly about something. Mm-hmm. That tells me that the kind of relationship you have to that something mm. is a negative one. Mm. Whether it be like loss, like people coming in who, even myself, if I say like, I've had so much loss in my life. I've had three people who tore themselves away from me. I had, you know, all these horrible, horrible experiences that have just taught me the world is a sad, dark place. And that's why I'm a therapist. I would say, baby girl, you're doing it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) That's a really, really dark and heavy way to live through life Mm -hmm. is what I would say. Mm -hmm, Because mm -hmm. you can also look at the story and the way that I've come to understand it and the way that I've come to process it for myself of saying, this is something that is way more common than I would ever, ever want it to be. And I have experienced three teenagers who felt so strongly about the pain in their lives that they decided to end their entire lives, Mm -hmm. which says a lot. Mm -hmm. And I want to help people figure out how to not do that. Like not just about suicide, but why as a culture, why as a community, why as a people, as a human race, are we having some members that are killing themselves off? 
or killing other people yeah. or, or the rage, the violence that, that, you know, I have talked about a little bit, but I mean, I think that's why we have such divisiveness and, and violence in our communities now, because we just don't know how to support each other. Yeah, I know. And, and, and that's why, you know, the, the name of the podcast is the mind reboot just because on these questions that that you pose are one phenomenal questions and ones that we should all be asking ourselves and um you know as individuals but as societies as governments as all that right that if we care about ourselves we care about others it's just it's a, it's a relationship right yep. you can't yeah it just is what it is but that um you know we we don't have a baseline understanding of any of those things. And so this mind reboot to me is that like, let's mm-hmm. get to this point of, all right, you know, what is, what is that for me? What, who am I? Yep. Um, you know, what is my purpose? And yep. I need some clarity around that because from a reboot perspective, I look at it like <clears throat> computers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a relationship between hardware and software. Um, and you have the, the, the body, but you also have the, the mind and the mind is that program and the mind can be programmed mm-hmm. in, in, in good and bad ways, right? Where if you're, if it's left to, um, just kind of whatever and not understanding it, then it's programmed by others. And sometimes not in a great way, yep. marketing, yep. You know, advertising, yep. um, just negative influence, whatever that is. Yep. Um, and so that reboot to me is that get, getting that power back. Um, and it could look different for, you know, for a lot of people. And these are the conversations you want to be having. But, you know, in, in how, how do you feel you're on some level um, doing that for people or changing the program yeah. um, that, they, that they have or that narrative or whatever that looks like or how you identify with, you know, what I call the program? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think it, when I initially looked at the six tenants that you have set out for the Mind Re- Reboot, that is, again, like touching on six very important parts of the human experience that all play into who you are and why, why you are the way you are. And I mean, I think anything that I end up talking about can be related back to one of those six tenants, if not multiple of them at the same time, because food, I'm going to be able to talk about your relationship to food in a way that helps you understand what you're really wanting. Mm -hmm. If you're valuing, uh, pleasure and, and, Mm -hmm. um, reward from taste experiences like that's going to get you a different goal that's going to get to get you to a different place than saying i want to eat the cleanest most <laughs> nutritious food that i possibly can two very very different paths very right? different paths but it's all about your relationship and it's not my place to judge you and say like well the way that you're relating to food is bad now if you're coming in and saying like i hate the way that i think about food like i don't want to i don't want to feel this way and just like always be using food as a reward Great, let's work on that then, because you've identified that there is a part of your program that does not meet your ultimate end goals. Right. And so whatever that is that you're coming in with, whatever it is you're coming in and saying, I have a problem, that is never actually the problem for me. Like 99% of the time. Is I have a symptom. People are coming in and saying, yeah, I have a symptom. And, and I don't want to feel this a problem, anymore. Right. Yeah. And so I say, I can't make you stop feeling things, mm-hmm. but I can, I can help you change the way that you feel about them. Mm. Learning to incorporate some of these challenges and difficult experiences to understand yourself better. I have a client who has had so many challenges with his body and from the outside, you would never tell. Like, I mean, he's got a very nice physique. He's very like good complexion, like nice hair, like 
but he has done so much throughout his lifetime to address like grain and, and like other issues, like sensitivities in his body that were holding him back functionally. And that happens with our body, uh, with like with our food, it happens with our sleep, it happens with water. It also happens with the way that we think about ourselves and the health of our relationships, our, our sexual identities and our sexual relationships with ourselves. Like, is your life, is your relationship to life one that is just about productivity and gain? Or is there part of your life that's also about like experiencing and enjoying what you have too and finding that balance? Yeah, and it, it all comes from on some level, some program, some, and you came from somewhere, some influence, somebody, yep. you know, yep. something you saw, something you wanted, you know, the, the, oh, this is this is a route to, to achieving that. And, yep. you know, and that's why people feel the way they do sometimes is empty because they thought it was going to help them get that thing. And yep. they got there and they're like, wait a second, I'm not feeling the way I need it, you know, mm-hmm. that I wanted to feel. So, you know, what's the biggest thing or that, that I guess you work on with people um, when it comes to, well, let me backtrack for a second. Uh, you you brought up those tenants and one of those being nutrition. I feel like for me personally, and, and we've both talked about the, the ADHD and you know, those qualities, uh, we'll call them that, that we share in common, but that nutrition plays a significant role in my life that uh, can immediately adversely have uh, an impact on my mental state of being mm-hmm. like the next day or, you know, something that just doesn't agree with me, man, it could like mm-hmm. just drain me mentally, physically, emotionally, you know, yep. spiritually, like all those things. And so, you know, what do you, what do you think is the single most important thing when talking about, um, a change you can make in your life that has a positive impact, right? Um, cause there's so many, right. And, and but I think you got to pick somewhere. It's kind of overwhelming yeah. for a lot of people to, to have to go, but is that even a fair question to ask, I guess? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to give you the most therapeutic answer I possibly can. <laughs> I'm going to jump the context here and say the most important thing that you can do, that any one of my clients can do that I start with, is awareness. The so more mindset kind of? Is that what you... atten- well, not just the mindset, because like that, that is one part of mm-hmm. the change that mm-hmm. you can make. Like Cognitive behavioral therapy is about addressing the way that you think and how that relates to how you behave. Sure. So that's only two aspects of your experience, though. It's not about your physical sensations. It's not about your sexual health. Like, there's specific things. But um, but more you're talking about, your mindfulness. Mindfulness. Right. Awareness, awareness of anything. Right. If you improve your awareness of yourself, then as you're eating different foods, you can start to pay attention to how your body reacts afterward. Yeah. As you are experimenting in sex with your partner, and trying new things, you can be aware of the sensations in your body and what feels good and what doesn't as you're working with your ADHD and trying out different methods of structuring your day or organizing your tasks, pay, paying attention to what's working and what's not working is ultimately what's going to get you to the next step of doing something different. What's the most difficult thing to overcome? Is it for, and I'm sure it's different things for different people, right? Um, in terms of getting what you want, but is there a particular challenge that we all kind of have to overcome, whether it be feeling like, is it a self-worth of, um, like we talked about before, the symptom versus the, you know, the, the root problem mm-hmm. or the root mm-hmm. cause, uh, you know, the, the symptom being not getting what you want out of a sexual experience, out of a relationship, out of you know a particular experience in life, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Um, 
is it is it that deserve level kind of uh, mentality of I don't deserve something and so it manifests in a rainbow of ways? Yeah, and I'm not sure if like the deserving part of it is necessarily at the core of all of it. I think that is one of the manifestations. So more of, symptoms. So deserving is even a symptom. I think that's a symptom. Yeah. Oh, wow. Like feeling guilty or shameful. Like those mm-hmm. are are symptoms too of something else. I'm not sure exactly whether no, it is, no, no, but sure. it, that's it could I mean, be different that, for everybody. Right. Yeah. But I think it's more about not not thinking that you can for some reason. Not thinking you can, which could be because you don't feel like you could deserve it. It could be because people have told you you can't and you believe them. It could be that the way that the society is constructed around you, you don't have as many opportunities to get the things that you want as other people do. And so because of the unfairness and the inequity, you interpret that to mean that you can't. And so you don't pursue it. Do you see where I'm going? Like there's yeah, so many so, different... And, and, and also it seems like uh, mindfulness would play a significant role in, in the individual, in this case your patient, really identifying with what that is, right? And kind of going on that journey with you. And it seems like you're kind of giving them the tools and, and going along that journey with them, but it's really a self-discovery of... Yeah. You know what? What is yeah? What's at the? Where is that root? Where where did yeah. it start? You know, and maybe even going into, um, into the past mm-hmm. as to what have, what would have happened there. Maybe would it be a past trauma, an influence, or I mean, so? It, yeah. is that, am I? Yeah. Yeah. Spot absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, for sure. I mean, like, it, it's it's cool to hear how other people conceptualize therapy, but I mean, that's basically what we're doing. Is like, I'm there to help you figure out what you want. I have more experience and more language to be able to put to some of the things that you're looking for. And I'm also there as a non-judgmental, one of the most important tenets of mindfulness is non-judgmental awareness. A therapist should be the most non-judgmental relationship that you have, probably even less judgmental than you are to yourself because your therapist is going to notice like, Hey, you keep shitting on yourself every time you talk about that experience. What's so wrong about what you did? And they're like, well, you know, because I shouldn't have done it that way, or I should have known better not to, not to experience that. And I'm like, where, what, why, who told you that? Do you well, think it's possible? Sorry, I mean, just, no. you know, but do you think it's possible to, I don't know, on some level, not necessarily betray that in someone to not be judgmental, but as a therapist to even be a therapist and be judgmental? Do you think it's possible to do your job? Um, and do you think it exists or is it more prevalent? And, and, and that's the difference between finding a good therapist <laughs> and not. So you're asking is, is, is that the a totally judgment loaded question? Like, I mean, yes, no it's always loaded. Trouble. It's we always loaded. You in trouble. No, I mean, like we all have our, our own personal preferences and ideologies. And I think that that's important to acknowledge, too. I, I would have a very big problem working with a racist homophobe in therapy. That but doesn't that, mean that, I wouldn't do it. But is that also just. I mean, like as, as that, that that maybe not so much as a therapist as it is a, a, a professional and, and you know in business and entrepreneur maybe not as entrepreneur but as a professional that you can say like on some level I got to see this as someone that isn't worth working with you know or is that just not applicable like do you have um, to take people as far as your practice like if they come no. to you, you know? it's 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 kind of a mixed bag I mean like theoretically I am of the mindset that you should be able to work with anything. You should be able to sit across the room from your abuser and have a conversation about how that experience impacted you. And there's actually a lot of really cool reform work being done with 
uh, violent offenders in the prison system mm-hmm. and their their ability to have meaningful conversations with the people that they hurt and just getting that that understanding there that they're not just a terrible person. They might have been in a terrible place or they might have done a terrible thing, but to be understood by the person that they hurt or at least just given the opportunity to talk and have their beliefs be understood and heard is enough for them people to feel comfortable making different choices the next time. Yeah. Not feeling so much rage and shame and self-hatred because that's what we're taught to believe cancel culture. You and I talked about that too, right? Yeah. So being able to sit in a room with somebody who holds extremely different ideals than you, I think is theoretically a goal, but I've also had the conversations. I'm also a tall, straight, well, straight looking white male. uh, So I get all the privilege, privilege in the world, but for a young brown woman to be in a room with a tall racist man, she is not going to have as easy of a time working with that as I will. I am actually still going to challenge her to think about, are you feeling threatened because he's threatening to you? Are you feeling threatened because he, like you feel like that type of person in your life is threatening to you. Right. Right. Is it the, is it the idea of someone or is it the someone? Right. Right. Exactly. Because well, you no, could be shutting down an opportunity to connect with somebody right, that's right, completely right, right, different. Right. No, but it was very, very well said. Um, yeah. And and I guess, you know, on, on that level, is that something that is, is practiced that maybe is the better question, um, you know, where a, a therapist has a therapist? Uh, oh, know, yeah. Always. Like, that's a therapist like, should always have a therapist. Okay. Yeah. So that's, yeah. So that's more like keep, having someone keep you in check, I guess, is the thing yeah. I was, you know, getting to is, you know, can you even get to that place of... You know, if you're truly committed to the process, mm-hmm. right, then you should you should always have that empathetic, um, yep. yeah, just approaching it with a very clear, you know, like a, a fresh slate, right? Yep. Um, yep. A blank pad, if you will. Yeah, yeah. Not no, everybody's I'm, the same. And and I I don't think everybody's going to get there, nor should they have to. Like we are humans too, and that's definitely one thing the pandemic has shown us is that our therapists are people too. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're stuck at home, going through the same kind of bullshit that we are, uh, and they are going to wake up some days and not feel like talking, or they're going to have issues with their vaccinations and need to take the day off last minute. They're people. Or their kids uh, can't find you know whatever. Yeah. They're people. Yeah. Um, so we have to acknowledge that too, but, but yeah, it's one of my goals at least to be able to sit in a room with anyone and have, have a conversation. So I want to talk to you about two things. Um, one being that we talked about your ADHD, um, you help about, and and correct me if I'm wrong, but about half your patients have about, have ADHD Mm -hmm. or something Mm -hmm. similar. Um, so do as part of your uh, your practice, do you see individual patients then also? Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Even though you're a marriage and family therapist, you see yep. people individually, but you also are, are you know, fully capable of, or, or, or do probably see mm-hmm. couples and families as well, yeah. right? Yeah, it's actually the, the unfortunate part about our title is that it makes it seem like all we do is work with marriages and like families with young kids, but it's really just describing the kind of systemic thinking that we do with relationships. So most of my practice is individuals, actually. I mean, I think I have 
four or five couples, but most of my most of my uh, clients are individuals, and at least half of my clients are ADHD, either uh, the individuals or in yeah, couples. So or um, yeah. And I have a lot of couples that look for therapists who have ADHD or experience working with it because of the unique challenges that come up mm-hmm, in relationships mm-hmm, with ADHD. Um, which, if I'm working with an individual, it's coming to understand how they're family and their teachers and their their like significant others have related to them differently uh, because of the way that they present and operate in the world with ADHD. Um, or a lot of times the other side of this is helping couples come to understand how to work together to not not pathologize what's happening, but then still being able to hold each other accountable, like how to have some of those uncomfortable conversations about like, I've noticed that you, you wait to take the trash out until it's like already overflowing mm-hmm, and like mm-hmm, every time. Mm-hmm. So like, can we do that differently mm-hmm, instead mm-hmm. of you're always like a piece of trash because you can't take out the trash. Like you're so lazy. Like, why are you always procrastinating? That's going to shut somebody down and, and keep the relationship stuck in that dysfunctional pattern. For sure. No. When it comes to ADHD, is it always kind of like, I guess for only because this is the only way I can identify it myself is, are the problems always with that person? Like if it's in a family situation where it's like, oh, you're learning how to deal with the ADHD person in the room kind of thing? Mm, I want to say yes and no. Um Oh, just because it's a nuance, right? Like, yeah. it's a relationship again. Yeah, and, right? and yeah, it's it's hard for me to say that the ADHD person is the one that's not conforming. But it presents challenges, I'm sure. But it presents challenges. I think that's where the spotlight goes. Like the the, mm-hmm. the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Yeah, yeah. It, they're the ones with the behavioral problems, quote unquote. Um, but then a lot of times my work with families in that situation is psychoeducation around what ADHD actually is. Well, and and that leads me to my next question, because, you know, on on some level, right, it's just, it's this, it's why I don't like labels, but I understand them, right? There needs to be some order to things, right? And and kind of figuring out people's strengths and whatever, but, right, the rainbow isn't a, like, like it doesn't, it doesn't have these lines, right? It's, Mm -hmm. it's, it's it's blurred the whole Mm -hmm. way through. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where the, the challenge is that we try to fit, um, you know, what is it, a square peg in a round hole mm-hmm. kind of thing. And mm-hmm. so uh, that is, it, it is a relationship, right? Because you talked about community in the beginning and in this relationship between it. But mm-hmm. I always felt like, man, everything was my fault. Like in life, mm-hmm. if something happened, I mean, like legitimately, yep. they, without even think, asking anything, it, just, it was my fault. Yep, yep. And so... You know, how much of it is it, and also with school, right? Just not doing well in school. Like mm-hmm. I, was, I was a terrible student. So, but I guess what I'm asking it is the understanding of, you know, not everyone's created the same. And so how can we treat everyone the same? And how can right. we expect that when someone is created a certain way and we, they've come to label it as ADHD, right? Mm-hmm. Which is part of my question is, you know, one, what is ADHD and how big is that spectrum mm-hmm. that I feel like? It's I don't huge. really, yeah, like it's, I, you know, sometimes people say they do and I'm like, oh man, it doesn't yep. sound like, like it sounds mild compared to what I have. Right. So, you know, where, how, right. yeah. Um, I know it, it is a huge spectrum and that's why, I mean, in recent years they've talked about opening up the spectrum between ADHD and autism spectrum disorder too. Like it's all just one kind of big continuum now. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason it gets confused is just like when people say they have OCD because they like to have their yeah. soap facing the right direction right. in their bathroom. Like 
Yeah, that is like kind of an obsessive thought to have. Is it stopping you from living your life and having children because you're worried about them not putting the soap back in the right direction, right? Like that's a real thing. It's a real thing. Like, and and that's what people don't understand. And same with bipolar. It's like, sure, you might have a down day one day, an up day the next day. Bipolar people are going to go from like sleeping on the couch for 18 hours and then going out and spending $30,000 at the casino. Like that's, that's real bipolar. And so the same spectrum with ADHD is like, Hmm. sure, you might be a procrastinator. You might like, you know, not be so organized with your, your bills or like, you know, whatever, but that's, it's not something that you wake up every day and you struggle with. How do I get started on the things that I need to do? How do I even know what are the things that I need to do? My brain is going a million miles a minute and I can't focus on the one thing that I need to get done because I'm thinking about the 18 things that I need to get done. And now it's like half my day and I'm already behind and now I feel like shit. And now the cycle starts over. Like it's a very different yeah, it's a different intensity for people that are struggling with a clinically diagnosable disorder, quote unquote, label, blah, blah, blah. Um, the one thing I was going to say, though, is that like no matter where you're getting diagnosed, no matter what your label is, like at least my approach to therapy, maybe this is also because I have ADHD, but my approach to therapy is like we are always going to take time to figure out how you are in relationship to the rest of your life. So what's going on with your teachers that is bringing up conflict that sent them to that, that resulted in you coming to my office or what is happening in the relationship between you and your parents that they're now getting so frustrated that they're seeking therapy? Like what is happening in each of these interactions and what can we do to alleviate the symptom? We can't get rid of the quote unquote problem. The problem is ADHD. People just want to like medicate that away or treat well, that away. Yeah, and that's and that's what I was going to ask you too, because you said you know these these labels, right? And the, the air quotes went up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think it is that because you know if you label something, it almost seems like you villainize it in some yeah. way, right? Yeah. Or vilify it, or villainize, villainize, vilify. Yeah. Whatever. But uh, we'll correct it. No, whatever. It is what it is. Uh, but yeah, so you make it bad, um, and. You know, it almost seems like we, as if you call it ADHD, all it really is is, I mean, we're not like it's not like an alien thing, right? It's not like mm-hmm. a non-human experience that you're having that's so different from somebody else. Right. It just on some level, it's like this. How everyone refers to me in my life is I'm an extremist, and so it's just this hyper something of mm-hmm. whatever someone says. Oh, it's extreme. It's yeah, it's because my brain just you know, goes a bazillion miles a minute out mm-hmm. to the most extreme of something. And I see yeah. it and I can almost look at it like I'm okay with it, but because I feel like I have enough time before something like that actually happens because I've thought about it. Yeah. Right. And so I see it as a benefit. Yeah. And yet sometimes, and, and this always used to happen to me in school, like I would get things wrong on tests all the time. Uh, and it wasn't because I didn't know the answer. It was because I complicated the the question so much. Like it wasn't, it was too simple. Mm-hmm. That it had to have all these, like, what do you mean? Like, so when you said, because it can mean all this. So mm-hmm. which one do you, you know what I mean? Like I, I went so all many these, possibilities. Yeah, but they're yeah. like, oh, no, 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 you don't get it. And like, no, it's just, there's not just one answer. Right. <laughs> you know, there's multiple answers. Right, right. Um, I don't even know if I had a question on that, but I guess from ADHD, well, no, I guess I did, the spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. Is it really ADHD or is it just... Like we just just different in that we have yeah. different hyper or you know um, what do you call it uh, um, 
yeah, extremist type or, mm-hmm. you know, like spectrum views. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So is it, it, I mean, is it even safe to say, or is it, is it a conversation worth having about saying it's not really ADHD, it's just m- more? <laughs> sure. You're more of a person, like, you, sure. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I, I like to think of it as a superpower too. And there's a lot of research and articles out there that have shown that people with neurodiverse brains, like people who are literally wired differently in their brains, have benefits beyond beyond the the normal human population. I mean, even Einstein was believed to be ASD, uh, autism spectrum disorder. Um, a lot of other, like, uh, who was the, the CEO of JetBlue, the CEO of Virgin Mobile, the CEO of um, some other big ass company. I can't remember. There are a bunch of CEOs who are either yeah. uh, on, on the autism spectrum or ADHD. So it can be a superpower, but I think that it can also be the thing that really separates you from the people in your life because they don't understand it yet. I mean, so many of the nineties kids like me are coming into therapy now, like kind of fucked up because their systems didn't understand what was happening and they didn't understand what was happening. And so like, I mean, I have people that have gone to psychiatric facilities because they had ADHD, but people thought that it was some major psychiatric disorder because they were like all over the place and losing their shit because people are trying to tell them to sit still and be quiet and like not make any, any moves. And like this kid is bouncing around the room with energy because he can't help it. Yeah. So just the misunderstanding, like, and that's where it generalizes to everything in therapy, like just not understanding what is happening in our relationships. Why are these parents relating to this hyper kid this way? Were they taught that it like children are supposed to be seen and not heard and like coming to understand the relationship between everything i I don't know how else to say it you said you started off by saying it you explained it very well yeah um i think you shared an incredible amount of uh of wisdom but also stories to support that you know (laughs) what you said is that everything is a relationship right and Mm so um yeah i was a little taken aback when you said you were a licensed marriage and family therapist Mm -hmm. just because of how much um you know you work in the like i said with these specific type of labels right um yeah. and so you know for one I'm, I'm grateful for that just because it's something that i feel like not a lot of people can relate to and i can see why those who do have <laughs> uh, or are labeled that way gravitate towards you yeah but if um if someone's listening and says you know that that sounds like me you know how how, how would they uh, go about uh is it i mean you can reach out to to josh directly yeah you know there's yeah. a form below it gets right to him you know, but but what is that? Just is it just reaching out to you? Do they mm-hmm. do they have to go to the clinic? Um, no, I mean you can reach out to me. I'm also the the clinical director for our practice, and so gotcha. I do a lot of work with uh, placing people with other therapists. I mean, and the the therapy field is growing so massively right now because so many people need therapists, and so you can reach out to me. I mean, I'm I'm full, and our practice mm-hmm. is, is sure close to full because it's it's been a really rough year for everybody. Yeah. And, and so you saw an uptick. Oh my God! Like it's yeah. Yeah, it was it was sad how much of an uptick we had in the last year. Yeah. Do you think it was as sad or is it like, you know, it, it's it's those like almost like a doctor when those patients who if they hadn't gone at that time, mm-hmm. like their heart would have exploded kind of yeah. thing and yeah. yet they they should have gone like years ago. Yeah. 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 I do I'm feel sure. like that. Yeah. yeah. It was sad because so many people have needed help and are just now getting it. And it got it probably like just compound yeah. you know effect of yeah everything so yeah but it's uh it's important like and and you shouldn't wait like shouldn't wait to get one it's only gonna get harder 
from here on out. So well, you heard it from uh, from Josh cool. himself. Reach out, please. Well, actually, uh, that sounds way too dark. Like <laughs> everything is not just going to get worse, but nothing is going to get easier. But nothing is going to get easier. But happiness is attainable. Yes. Joy, peace, yes. Um, is very achievable. So, uh, with that being said, again, thank you. Yeah. Appreciate you, Josh, and uh, I look forward to many more conversations. Fantastic. Thank right. you. Take care.